Welcome to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. I'm Hannah. And I'm Tyler. We're here to learn more about the lives of authors that have inspired us. A journey into the stories they not only created, but also lived. So join us as we dive deep into the worlds that live just out of reach. All right, who's ready to go and do some some stories? Who's excited about telling stories and making sure everybody knows about a whole bunch of stories and stuff? Huh? I'm so excited to talk about stories. Let's let's do that, Hannah. Are you excited? Did you just snort cocaine? No, I did not just snort cocaine. What are you talking about? I have no That's idea. Exactly. I've been recording with you way too long because I my mind immediately went to cocaine when you were like, "I need a bit." You're starting to figure me out. You're starting to pick, pick apart my little bits. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's funny. So, uh, does that give away who we're talking about enough? <laughs> we just do a lot of coke? Uh, I guess. I mean, is there another famous writer who's done as much coke as who we're talking about today? You, I don't I don't know. Maybe other drugs, but not <laughs> coke specifically. Um Yeah, I I I think it's pretty clear who we're going to talk about. We did tease it pretty heavily. Yeah, I mean, if you listen to the last episode, then you know who we're talking about anyway. Yeah, and everyone did, because they're loyal listeners. Yeah, we're going to talk about C.S. Lewis again. <laughs> known cokehead. <laughs> yeah, C.S. Lewis, the known cokehead. <laughs> that line was Jesus? No, lion was a line of coke. Come on, guys. <laughs> brilliant yeah we should do special episodes where we just spread misinformation about classic authors yeah that would be so i mean people would probably get pretty pissed off at us but <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> but pissed off gets ratings so true Win-win. very true so yeah so all right the, so the yeah. actual um attic that we're talking about is Stephen King. Yes. Stephen motherfucking King. <laughs> is that a thing? Did I make that joke? It sounds like a Tyler joke. Uh, it. I feel like you've said that before. But I, yeah. I feel like Stephen King deserves it. Because he is like the number one horror writer of the modern era. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I, would, I, don't... Ag- I would agree with that for the most part. For the most part, who comes close right now? There's um, Lewis, C.S. Lewis. Um, he's not a horror writer, and he's not of the modern era. That's true. Uh, Joe Hill, <laughs> Ock, Owen King. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so. Stephen King, um, if you guys have been living under a rock and don't know of him, he's the author of more than 60 novels, several of which he wrote under a pseudonym, five nonfiction books, and literally hundreds of short stories. Yeah, um, which Stephen King was one of the ones like that um, like was... I was when I jumped into being an author, I was like, hey, I'm going to write this novel and then I'm going to be a famous writer. 
Uh, and then I'm going to make another novel and then I'm going to be rich and famous and all of my dreams will come true. Right. But Stephen King learning about him, like back three years ago when I first started to read on writing, I started to realize how much work I could put into being an author and not make it, um, (laughs) for some time (laughs) and like how there's a different process of going about it. So it's not just like, it's not just like write one book become famous like Stephen King along with you know when when I was reading about H.P. Lovecraft like they wrote short stories and that was what they did they weren't King was never like I'm gonna write a big novel he was like I just need to make a paycheck I just need to make some money so he wrote short stories um so that was huge like for me to realize oh Stephen King didn't just write novels he wrote shorts like that was huge Yeah, and I think that's something that new authors, like you said, like, don't really think about. Everyone wants to write a novel, but as we've learned time and time again in our show, like, all of the greats basically wrote short stories. Yeah, it gives you a playground. It gives you uh, a try, you know, like, experiment. And, and like, if you dive into an author's short story, like, collection you get to see things that show up in their novels. And I think about that all the time when I'm writing now, where I'm like, this one character is a specific way. You know, I wonder if I'm, if people are going to look back at that and be like, oh, this was the seed of what would become this character in one of my later novels, right? Which have yet to be written. I'm not like holding on to, <laughs> to my later novels. If I had later novels, I'd, I'd sell them <laughs> and I'd make a load of money. Uh that's going to be the name of one of my books. It's just The Later Novels by Tyler Clausen. <laughs> that should be the title of your first book. Oh, my really God. You're so people. right. <laughs> Everyone's going to be like, where's okay, the so- Skype in? What, what, is, what are they talking about? The Later Novels. He's fucking 35. <laughs> there will be, like, complete conspiracy theories about it. Like, has anybody read Tyler Clausen's early novels? Where are they? My last book, the book that will be written, will be, like, ri- uh, published after I die, will be the early works of Tyler Clausen. <laughs> That's going to be such a pain in the ass for your biographer. For whoever's running between Lewis and Lovecraft at that time. <laughs> They're like, yeah, guys, I know it sounds crazy, but the early works were actually his final words yeah <laughs> that was his post-mortem works his later <laughs> works are actually his first works it's a whole thing he's a he's a weird guy <laughs> okay so now that we've like set up this whole future tyler publishing plan should we talk about stephen king yeah let's talk about the guy who definitely outdoes me as far as having later works <laughs> hey you've got time to catch up you just got to average like three novels a year for the rest of yeah. your life. I don't know. I don't think if I don't think mathematically I can I can have more <laughs> books than he does at this point. But tell me about so, Stephen motherfucking King. So Stephen, actual real name Edwin King, was born on September 21st, 1947 in Portland, Maine to parents Nellie Ruth Pillsbury and Donald Edwin King who was a captain in the Merchant Marines, which is not like the actual Marines. It's not the military at all, but they like help get stuff to where it's supposed to go on the open seas. So wait, Um, what? (laughs) I don't know anything about these. Merchant Marines are really super confusing. They're not the military, but they kind of like 
work with the military because it's involving sea transport. Okay. But the the short story was that Donald spent a lot of time away from the family, um, which put his marriage on shaky ground from day one. Also, Classic. he was a bit of a whore, so that Ooh. also did not help. <laughs> So, he so like, he was a bit like H.P. Lovecraft's dad. That's what I was about to say. He was more <laughs> yeah. like his dad, getting syphilis and going crazy. <laughs> so Stephen actually had an older brother, David, who was adopted because doctors did not think that Ruth and Donald would be able to have a baby. So Stephen shows up and is a total surprise. Um, but Donald ended up leaving the family when uh, Stephen was only two years old. And that left them in a really bad position because in the 1940s, it was pretty hard for a, uh, a not single mom even, because she was technically still married, but an abandoned mom with two kids to, uh, to make money and put food on the table. So uh, they really depended uh, on their yeah. relatives. Wasn't that like yeah. Alistair Crowley? Crowley like left his wife, but he didn't like divorce her. So she was like abandoned as well. Oh, it could be. Yeah, it's. Uh, apparently it was really shitty back then like if you weren't divorced but abandoned it was awful i thought we were trying to get away from like early and mid-century white guys the hell (laughs) (laughs) they never really go away also can we just can we just real quick pause pillsbury pillsbury like they didn't have any of that doughboy money oh fuck damn it i know So they bounced from one relative's house to another, staying basically until their mom felt they were wearing out their welcome. Uh, They lived everywhere from Chicago to Indiana, Massachusetts, and even Wisconsin. So they were moving all the time. Um, They were also super poor, so the brothers often had to share a bed and also felt like they had to stay out of their relative's way because who wants, like, a couple little toddlers running around who aren't even yours? Yeah, I mean, not yeah, as in we don't want toddlers but yeah that sucks like that mentality <laughs> is terrible so how, wait, how they, old are they uh, at this point like four years old um so D- david was probably like four steven was two when okay. their dad left so very young i mean you you mentioned uh they had to share a bed but like i shared a bed with my brother uh for a very long time and like he still gives me crap about it because He's still upset that he had to share a bed with me, but we did. I was very lucky. I never even shared a room with my sister, but my mom grew up with nine siblings, so she shared a bed with, like, three of her sisters. Oh, my gosh. Um, Yeah, no, thank you. I grew out of sleeping in the same bed as my brother. Like, eventually I got, like, my own room and stuff, but no, there was, especially at that period, I don't think that's super weird. At least I we'll hope, have to I put a poll weird. on, on I don't Instagram how long you, or something. Like, held your tongue on that. Like, mm, do we want to get into this one, Tyler? <laughs> I don't know if it's weird or not. Maybe it's not weird. <laughs> but yeah, so they were very close growing up, and because they kind of felt pressured to be quiet and you know good kids, they'd usually entertain themselves by reading. Uh, and their mom was a big advocate for reading, so she would quiz them on whatever they'd read um, as soon as she got home from work. Nice. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, pretty chaotic childhood for the King brothers. And there's a lot of these moments in Stephen King's life where it's like, 
did God know that you were going to be a horror writer someday? Because he just made like crazy (laughs) shit happen to you. And that's what happened when he was four years old. So his mom dropped Steven off to play with a friend one day. um, And he was supposed to like get the parents to call whenever he wanted to come home. Sure. Well, an hour and a half after she dropped him off, he showed up back at home having walked the whole way and like obviously in shock. He was like white as a sheet, not talking. Yeah. And Ruth found out that while they were playing, Steve's friend wandered over to the train tracks and got hit by a freight train. What the fuck? And so he saw that all go down. And apparently his mother later said that they picked up the pieces of his friend in a wicker basket. (gasps) What? Yes. But Steve says he did not remember the incident at all and only remembered being told about it years after the fact. So, Uh, crazy start. That's messed up, man. That that stuff like buries into your subconscious and i like not that this is the same at all like i'm not comparing this story to watching your friend being run down by a train but like i remember when i was uh my my dad had moved across the states to pittsburgh we lived with a family uh and i had uh quote unquote er uh grandparents and uh, at one point, my older brother and I were, were helping paint their porch. And I remember it being that my older brother said something, you know, sarcastic or witty or just, you know, unrespectful, non-disrespectful to them somehow. Disrespectful. Yeah, thank you. It took me a minute to get there. Um, and, you know, I was like 10. He was 13. I remember that grandpa again air quotes popping him right in the face just giving a big slap just whack just being like don't get smart with me and then you know like that lived in my brain forever and then when we were older like 20 something we were telling our dad about that which our dad already was like that's annoying i wish he would have told me about that so i could have beat the crap out of that old man but you know (laughs) outside of that like and then my brother's like well that's the thing is it didn't happen to me it happened to tyler Tyler's the one that got slapped. And I'm like, no, it wasn't. You're the one that got slapped. And so now we don't know. Like, both of us remember that the other one got slapped. And we cannot recall any facts of, like, this is absolute, you're the one. We just remember it was the other one. So, like, one of us is suppressing the memory of being slapped. And the other one, like, just remembers it. That's bizarre. Right? It's crazy. I mean, I know on a, like, literal scientific level that, yes, that's very common. And children, especially in traumatic instances, do not remember things very well. But it's like, how could you both have such different memories of the same thing? Yeah. So all I'm saying is my life is a little bit worse than Stephen King's. So. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So in addition to uh, reading a lot, um, Stephen liked to listen to um, the radio. He was actually like not allowed to listen to radio broadcasts at the time of Ray Bradbury's sci-fi stories. His mom would listen to them when he was like six. um, And she was like, no, you're not listening to this. It's too scary. 
But then he'd eavesdrop <laughs> through a he- heating vent upstairs in the house, and he would get so scared that nice. he'd go sleep under his brother's bed, which <clears throat> seems like just very on brand for Stephen King. If like H.P. Lovecraft is riding a tricycle through a cemetery, calling out for his grandpa Whipple, Stephen King is sleeping under his brother's bed. Yeah, and Stephen King is is just like I'm so scared, I'm so scared, and he's like crawling underneath. His brother's like, "What the fuck are you doing? I'm scared. Shut up." <laughs> I'd be terrified if I were his brother and woke up in the middle of the night to this kid under my yeah, bed. Yeah, could you imagine like you you're terrified that something's under your bed, and then you look under your bed, and there's someone. Actually, my sister did that to me once. She like snuck into my room one night and like hid under my bed. And when I got up in the middle uh, in the morning and put my feet down on the floor, she grabbed my ankles really suddenly. What? But I was so tired that I didn't react, and she was really disappointed. Oh, yeah, I would be disappointed too. That's, I mean, she probably laid there forever waiting. Yeah. So, um, so young Stephen had always been a very sickly child. Um, he got a lot of ear infections and other illnesses like measles and stuff. So he spent most of the first grade stuck at home, which resulted in him later being held back a grade. Hmm. Um, but during that time, he read book after book and then tried writing his own story. Um, his first one was about a white rabbit that drove around town with three animal friends looking for kids in trouble to save. Uh, his mom, Ruth, read all his stories and gave him a quarter for every one that he wrote. Nice. She's a really good mom. Yeah, she's already publishing his work. That's great. Getting, yeah. Getting him in advance. And then as Steve got a little older, he fell in love with horror movies like I Was a Teenage Werewolf and The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Um, and one thing that he's always said in a lot of interviews was that he really liked to be scared because he'd been raised in a family where um, emotional control was really valued. You weren't supposed to show emotions at all. You weren't supposed to show that you were afraid or that you were in pain or fr- or um, scared or sad. So he liked seeing stuff that made him emotional, which makes a lot sure. of sense. Uh, so... Getting into his uh, early schooling, he went to fifth and sixth grades at a one-room schoolhouse in West Durham, Maine. Um, and because he had art, because he had had to repeat the first grade, he was the oldest student and also the tallest. He was six foot two by the time he was twelve. Wow, six foot two. I'm not Which... sure how tall he eventually got, but people always like comment that he was super tall. So maybe he got to like six four or something. It's just it's just annoying, you know. First he's he's <laughs> written more than I could ever achieve to write. He's grown more than I could ever hope to grow. He's had worse child experiences than I did. It's like <laughs> every corner of this guy's just better than me. I like how you put he has worse childhood experiences than you in the plus column. Yeah. You should see a therapist about that. (laughs) Um, So in addition to reading, um, Steve had some other hobbies that his mother was less enchanted by. One of them became apparent in the late 50s. Um, There was a man called Charles Starkweather who went on a murder spree with his 14-year-old girlfriend. They killed 11 people before Starkweather was caught and executed, but little Stephen King was fascinated by this guy and made a scrapbook of newspaper clippings about Starkweather. His mom found the scrapbook one day and was absolutely horrified, as probably any mom of an 11-year-old would be. Um, But Stephen explained it to her, 
Yeah, he was like, no, mom, I'm studying this guy so that if I run into someone who has that dead look in his eyes, like Charles Starkweather, I'll be able to recognize the danger and run the opposite direction, which would still not satisfy me as a mother. I'd be like, nope, that's too much news for you. Uh, yeah, no, big no for me. You know, um, if I find my son is is uh, collecting the scraps of a of a series, unless the only <clears throat> the only explanation I'll allow, which even then I'll be iffy about, is he's like investigating it and he wants to like catch the guy. You know, like he's gonna make a murder <laughs> wall. With the red, with the red yarn, and he's like got the map up, and he's like he's hitting this part of the city and this part of the city, and I've got a pattern going, Dad. I don't know why my son. Is a, is... He sounds like a Midwest journalist who yeah. smokes six packs a day. Dad, look, I broke the case. I figured it out. Okay. <laughs> Trust okay, me. Okay, so that's. <laughs> That's when it's appropriate for a kid to have a murder scrapbook, but yeah. Stephen King, not so much. No, <laughs> I can just imagine how scary. Like he's like practicing his scrapbooking skills with murder <laughs> clippings. It's terrifying. <laughs> so yeah, that was something his mom wasn't crazy about. Um, one of his early signs of writing was um, him and his brother Dave started to publish a local newsletter where they'd like write about neighborhood news. Uh, and it was called Dave's rag and they sold it to their neighbors. So early publishing. Nice. Uh, um, Steve graduated eighth grade at the top of his class, though admittedly there were only three people in his class. So it wasn't a lot of competition. Oh my God. Uh, he moved on to a high school that had 500 students. So a lot more, uh, people there. He got through his freshman year of high school um, and then spent the summer upstairs in his attic, which is totally on brand again, uh, churning out short stories on a typewriter that was missing the M key, which shows up in misery. Um, He sent the stories to editors and got a steady flow of rejections back, like so many that he would stick the letters on a nail on the wall in the attic and they just kept piling up. Yeah. That's that's an interesting take, though, like. His ability to take critiques and criticism and not just like, not just take it well, like he used it to fuel his work where like someone like me, I wrote one shitty piece of literature and someone has the audacity to tell me it might not be the best piece of work ever. And I cry for three weeks because how (laughs) dare they? Like, he probably wrote these fantastic pieces as a child, and he's sending them to some of the hardest, you know, like, eyes to scan over it, and they're giving him good advice, and he's like, all right, cool, moving on. Uh, Yeah, he got a lot of, like, the, you know, didn't even read it responses, you know, form rejections, but every time he got one that was a little more personal, like, some, one said... Um, terrible story shows promise. Yeah. He got really happy about stuff like that. Yeah. So, um, oh, here's another one of the, like, disturbing Stephen King life stories. Yeah. In September of 1963, so I think that would have been, like, his sophomore year, um, he came home from school uh, and checked on his grandmother because they were living with his grandparents at the time and found her unresponsive in her room 
but he remembered a movie where a character held a small mirror to a person's mouth to see if it fogged up like they were breathing. So he took a compact from his grandma's dresser and held it up to her mouth and it stayed clear. So he knew she was dead. And then he just like sat in the room with the dead body until his mom came home. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. What? Good Lord, sir. I mean, I guess you don't really have like cell phones back then. So you can't call your mom. <laughs> yeah. But also you, they what they did have back in those days is other rooms. <laughs> well, they were very poor. Maybe this was a one room house. Like charlie and the chocolate factory um okay there's this other invention that they came up with called outside it doesn't matter (laughs) well he got some first-hand knowledge in what a dead body looked like so i'm sure that came in handy later (laughs) um so as a sophomore he also became editor-in-chief of the school paper uh but he wasn't really interested in news what he was interested in was Uh, One night he was alone in the newsroom and came up with the idea for something he called The Village Vomit, which was a satirical paper uh, where he wrote thinly veiled stories about his least favorite teachers and students. He passed out copies around (laughs) school and it was a smash hit. He didn't put his name on it, but of course, uh, teachers found out and were not happy. So he was suspended and had to apologize to every teacher he'd made fun of. It's fucking awesome, though. Like, it's such a it's such a dope move to be like, okay, you know what? Newspaper is boring. Let me go ahead and just attack the teachers I don't like anymore. Yep, and it made him really popular with his uh, fellow classmates, so it worked out for him. And the school was super nice, and instead of, like, expelling him, they tried to figure out a way to channel his talent more productively, so he got a part-time job as a sports reporter for the actual, like, local newspaper. Um, He'd always loved sports, but sadly wasn't very athletic, so this kind of, like, got him in that field. Sure, yeah. Uh, he also took up guitar in high school, playing in a band with some of his friends. Um, and then in 1965, the day he'd been waiting for finally arrived. A magazine called Comics Review wanted to publish his story called I Was a Teenage Grave Robber, which was about a mad scientist who grew human-sized maggots and hired a teenager to dig up corpses for them to eat. Uh, this is partially based on King's own experience digging graves as a part-time job when he was a kid. Wait, he grows what now? You're you said that word so weird. He grows human-sized maggots. 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 Like like the as larva. in baby flies. He grows them. Yes, in a lab. Okay. And then you have to feed human-sized maggots. Humans. Human sized humans right because everyone knows when i go to taco bell and get a taco it better be the same size as me (laughs) or else ain't gonna put up with that shit (laughs) you know that's an interesting perspective but you know um this was like a a 17 year old the standards are a little lower yeah (laughs) um so yeah so he didn't get paid for that story but he did get some free copies of the magazine and was very happy yeah it's better than uh, I've been able to do as a publisher. I'm forcing my writers to, <laughs> to buy their own books. <laughs> they have to fight shipping costs and everything. <laughs> I think that's a product of the time. Yeah, I don't know. It's whatever. Um, the following year, in 1966, King was awarded a full scholarship to the University of Maine. 
Uh, he signed up as an English major and also took education classes so he could get certified to teach in case his writing dreams did not pan out right away. So he was very logical. Sure. Yeah. Um, but around that time, he also made his first professional sale to a pulp magazine called Startling Mystery Stories. They paid him $35 for a story called The Glass Floor, which... I found this great tool online that calculates inflation. That would be almost $300 now. Dope. So that's actually really good. Yeah. And before that point, he'd uh, collected around 60 rejection notes from publishers. So it was about time he got a win. He probably put them in his scrapbook with his murdered clippings. <laughs> and then people who found it would be like, why do you have murder clippings next to all these signed documents that say you're not good enough? And then the FBI starts investigating, and they think he's going to kill the yeah. publishers. Oh, hey, so this guy's going to murder all these people. <laughs> um, so while he was in college, King was also heavily involved in liberal politics, and he's known like to this day for being very outspoken politically. Uh, he wrote a column for the newspaper and contributed short stories to the college literary magazines. Um, some of his classmates remembered reading the stories and thinking, wow, these are really violent. Is this guy sick in the head? So <laughs> we need Stephen King was an acquired taste. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, it's like, um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I know we want to talk about books, his actual books um, later in, in the next episode, but like for real, like you can't help but read his books and be like, <laughs> What the fuck is wrong with this guy? What is going on? Well, what the fuck is wrong with American society that we are buying his books in such great numbers? Society. Mm. <laughs> society. We live in a society, bro. <laughs> I know uh, Brianna is able to write some stuff that's uh, pretty messed up. Um, so I don't know. Maybe we need to get her back on the show and, and tell us how to come up with the most fucked up shit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in non fucked up shit news, though, <laughs> in 1968, Stephen met Tabitha Jane Spruce while in a writing seminar. Um, Tabitha had been aware of him bef before that, before they actually met, she because she'd seen his writing in the paper. Yes, she was watching him from afar. No, she saw his writing in the paper, and um, she said in one interview, right from the beginning, I thought he was as good as any published writer I knew. I think it impressed him that I appreciated what he did. He also was hot for my boobs. <laughs> so... <laughs> so she knew what he wanted, and... She knew what he was after. Before long, they started spending all of their time together, and within a few months, she moved into an apartment with him. Mm. Does that satisfy the uh, Tyler Clawson one-year requirement? I mean, at this point, I've given up, Hannah. <laughs> All of the successful authors break that rule. Yeah, they do. If if anything, I'm the weirdo because <laughs> I'm trying to be an author and I waited to marry my one wife who I have not cheated on. And I'm I'm the weird guy here. In this hey, club, they'd all look at me and be like, what the fuck is wrong with you, Tyler? <laughs> we've got some good news on the cheating front that I will save for the end of the episode. All right. He still has time. So, he's not dead yet. He's not dead yet. 
<laughs> so Stephen graduated in the spring of 1970. I think Tabitha, or she goes by Tabby, um, graduated like two years later. Um, and she got pregnant. So they got married on January 2nd, 1971 at a Catholic church in Old Town, Maine. Uh, Tabby's family was Catholic. They had a uh, like reception at a Methodist church because that's what King grew up in. Uh, and their daughter, Naomi, was born in June. So, six months after they got married. But who's counting? <laughs> you are, obviously. <laughs> I'm not, right? And I'm not the religious one, so. Yeah. I, like how, I like how in this episode, I'm just like, yeah, you know, let a boy do what a boy do. You know what I'm saying? He after them boobies. <laughs> he liked, he was hot for her boobs. So, um, he's out of college now. He spent the early days of his marriage working at a laundromat, uh, and writing short stories for men's magazines like Cavalier, which was similar to Playboy. Uh, his mom, poor little Ruth, was thrilled that her son was regularly selling stories, and she wanted to see them in print, so Tabby would make copies of the stories and black out all of the X-rated ads before sending them to his mom. <laughs> Some of the editors also tried to get King to write porn stories, like the stuff that would usually show up in their magazines, Yeah, and he actually tried, but he gave up after about 50 pages. He just couldn't do it. And part of that, he said, is because he's, like, so monogamous in his head that it was hard to write, like, this sensational, like, stuff that shows up in those magazines where people are having sex with multiple people yeah. or outside of marriage. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, some people are just super monog you know like they're they're down for the for the one the one person and i i'm one of those people hopefully you know i think i'm one of those people it's always scary to be like yeah i'm one of those people because everybody's like yeah but you're saying you are and that automatically puts doubt in my head like the second you said you feel like people think you're lying because you said it first yeah like the second that that you said Steven's like, yeah, I'm I'm so monogamous that I um that I can't write smut. Um <laughs> like that's how much I love my wife. Like I'm like, bro, are you for real though? <laughs> I I think I was reading that they've been asked about that before too because it's like obviously once someone becomes a superstar, people just assume women are going to throw themselves at him. Um, and I Isaac think they've Asimov. joked, like, yeah. <laughs> Tabby, like, takes it in stride, and she's like, oh, he knows that I'd kill him if he ever cheated on me. I'm like, oh, <laughs> get it, girl. I, I mean, and uh, also, uh, Brianna's is listening to the show right now. She makes a good point. You know, he does he does write a lot of grody stuff in his, in his other work, um, including it, the most famous of all, apparently, of all of literature's orgies is in it so <laughs> well i can't think of any other literature yeah. orgy one so. other orgy in any other book <laughs> name one i'm sure brianna's I'm typing sure they right exist, now <laughs> but... i can't because i'm so monogamous that's the only one i'll allow myself to read <laughs> <laughs> there, you didn't read it it's more than a thousand pages long i know you <laughs> hey if I wanted to listen to it, I could, but I didn't. I didn't want to. Oh, my God. That would be so many hours of audiobook. It would be. Okay. So, while Stephen King 
is writing for porn magazines. Uh, <laughs> one day in 1972, one of his friends comes to visit that, the family and he asks why Steve keeps writing for skin magazines. And King, as legend has it, replied, because the stories don't sell too well to Cosmopolitan, mm-hmm. which is the uh, well-known ladies magazine. So ah. his friend, who was named Flip, <laughs> accused King of not being able to write for women at all and bet him $10 that he couldn't write a story from a woman's point of view. Thus is the origin story of Carrie and uh, Tyler, as you alluded to earlier, like our two-parter, our second part is going to focus more on like the inspiration for some of King's most famous works and stuff like that. So we'll get way more into the the weeds of like how Carrie was written and what it was inspired by later on. But basically it stemmed from this bet. Uh, and King did have a really hard time writing it. Um, and he ended up throwing it in the trash after about 15 pages because he thought like, I can't do it, man. I don't understand women. And then Tabby fished it out of the garbage can and was like, this is really good. You should finish the story. Yeah. And she helped him with kind of the, the womanly thoughts or whatever. The womanly thoughts. So, the womanly thoughts, which are so different from the the manly thoughts. Uh, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, so so while this was all going on, um, their second child, Joseph Hillstrom King, was born in June of 1972. He, of course, grew up to be Joe Hill, the author and TV show creator. I don't know. He he wrote Lock and Key, right? That's show, the thing he's most runner? famous for. Yeah, show he's runner? most famous definitely for Lock and Key. And then now they're doing it on Netflix, which I haven't watched yet, but I know I probably should because I like the comic books. Yeah, maybe eventually we'll do a separate episode on Joe Hill. <laughs> but yeah, so they had a second mouth to feed while they were still like having not good financial times. Um, Stephen King started teaching at Hampton Academy in the fall of 1972. He also pumped gas and worked at the laundromat during the summer. Uh, while he was at school, he always had a book under his arm. And if he had any spare time, he was reading. Writing was his main priority, though. Um, and since money was still tight, he almost took an extra job. But Tabby, his like eternal supporter, said he couldn't because he needed to focus on writing. And as thanks for her blessing, he started drinking way too much and losing money on poker and pool. So Good job, Tabby. That's a great, great thing to do when you're seriously in debt <laughs> so uh, tabby was understand yeah tabby was understanding for a while but eventually uh she demanded he give him her wallet or his wallet she took out the credit cards and cut them all in half and yes. said this has got to stop yeah um meanwhile bill thompson who was an editor that stephen king had been sending um like short stories to and other stuff trying to get published he was an editor at um double day um this guy reached out and asked why he hadn't heard from King for a while. So King uh, fished Carrie, the manuscript, out of a drawer and sent it to Bill. He didn't think it would go anywhere because he thought this was his least marketable book idea. Uh, but Thompson disagreed and he promised to do everything he could do to get it published. Um, and for context, ghost stories and horror were getting really big at the time. The Exorcist came out in 71, so like the year prior. <clears throat> yeah. So Bill saw the, uh, the potential in this book. Then, one day in the spring of 1973, uh, King was teaching, and then he heard an announcement over the PA system at the school saying his wife was on the phone and could he please come to the office. 
He went to the office, picked up the phone, and Tabby said that Bill Thompson had sent a telegram offering an advance of $2,500 for the book. They were ecstatic. Yeah. Um, Did you you run the numbers on that one? I didn't do the inflation for that one, but there will be more numbers coming up soon. Bigger (laughs) numbers. That's a lot of money. It was enough that, um, you know, it took a lot of Steve's financial stress away. He bought a new car and the family moved into a four-room apartment in Bangor, Maine. Um, They'd been living in a very small trailer before that. Yeah. And as it turned out, uh, Carrie was a smash hit even at the publishing office. Copy editors snuck copies to secretaries who snuck copies to their friends. And it was just like blowing up. Nice. Um, and the good news kept coming. A couple months later, uh, Bill Thompson called Steve and asked if he was sitting down. Steve was like, no, why? And then Thompson said the paperback rights to Carrie had been sold to New American Library for $400,000 and half of that would be King's. So the inflation on this is $200,000 today would be worth more than $1 million, which is huge for any author, let yeah, alone a first Yeah, for your first timer. novel? That's insane. Like, that's unheard yeah. of. Yeah. So, he was basically a millionaire overnight, even though it was only $200,000 in the 70s. Um, and with that, Bill Thompson made an offer for his next novel, Salem's Lot, before Carrie was even published. So they were like, we've got some talent on our hands. Um, sadly, King's mother, Ruth, his... Uh, original fan had cancer and would not live to see her son's first novel published, but he did get to read the manuscript to her. Um, she died a few months before Carrie came out, which was in April 1974. Um, I was a little surprised by this for all of the excitement that Carrie like generated in the publishing office. It didn't make the New York times bestseller list and it sold only 13,000 out of 30,000 first edition copies. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. But uh, I guess the publishers weren't deterred by that at all because uh, King kept turning out novel after novel and they were like buying them up. Um, And he was still sending stories to the men's magazines where he'd gotten his start. And that was like partly to show appreciation for the fact that they'd, you know, given him work for all of those years writing. Yeah. And also because he found that short stories were a good way, like you said at the beginning of the episode, to kind of like work out ideas and try new things. So it was kind of like twofold for him. So he he's done the short story thing his entire career. But I thought that was kind of cool too, that like he kept basically writing for porn magazines, <laughs> even when he was a published he's novelist. Super published. And he, he still, I yeah. mean, hey. If, if they're going to pay, why not? If they're going to pay. Yeah. Well, I mean, he didn't really need the money at that point. But so for some of the titles that were coming out, like Rapid Fire, I know, he had Salem's real Lot. Quick, oh. I know real quick. Uh, the uh, There's there's also the fact that like he had just signed a contract when Car- all the stuff went down for Carrie. Because um, he was told on Mother's Day that he was basically a millionaire. Um, and, and he had just signed like that week or maybe that month just signed on for the next year's contract for teaching. So he's this, he's this millionaire basically who is now contractually obligated to be a high school teacher for English. Um, like I just, I love, 
I, it sucks. It would suck because now he either has to pay money to break his contract or he has to be a teacher who is a millionaire. <laughs> um, but just that idea, that's just an insane idea to me that like, even, even when you get that big break, like that doesn't mean that you get to just go fly to LA, get a mansion, you know, and, and servants and all this shit. Like even Stephen King, the guy that like made it big, immediately that that like nobody else does that even he had to stick around to be a teacher um because he had made a commitment so that was something that really stuck with me reading that story um and i and i also love how he explains you know that moment because it was it was mother's day so his wife had taken the kids to her mother's house um, mm-hmm. And he got the call from his editor agent and, you know, they had said, hey, BT dubs, you just made a hundred thousand dollars. So, you know, just throw or five hundred thousand dollars, two hundred thousand, two hundred. Was it two hundred? Two hundred for him. Four hundred right. total. <clears throat> right. OK. Yeah. And so and he and he had him explain it over and over again. He's like, wait, 50,000. No, five. Yeah, he misheard. Like, he was like, 40,000. That sounds great. And then yeah. they were like, no, add a zero. Yeah. And so like he has him explain it to him over and over again. Then he then he gets off the phone with him and tries to call his mother in law because, again, they didn't have cell phones at this time. So he calls the house um, and and they don't answer because they had already left or, 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 you know, they, she's gone or whatever. And so she had gone shopping. He doesn't know where she is. She, he can't get a hold of his wife. And so he just, the only thing he can do is just go down, down the road to go get a pack of cigarettes. He has to walk because he only has one car. This millionaire <laughs> only has one car and he has to walk to go get himself some cigarettes. And then, and then by the time he's back, he sees his wife pulling in and pulling out some, you know, some shopping bags. And he he hugs her and and he tells her, you know, I I, I sold it and we're going to make this much money. And um, and he said she looks at him. She looked at me. Then she looks around at our shitty apartment, realizing all the years that she supported me finally paid off. She just broke down in tears and, you know, and, and that was it. That was, it was that, that justification, that validation for everything that she had done and making sure he didn't fucking kill himself and, you know, pushing him to be a writer and, you know, that cutting up the credit cards, all that stuff. It was finally like it had paid off. Her work had paid off. And I know as a man, who is supporting my wife and, and she supports me and what I want to do, but I have mm-hmm. to go to work every day to support her and, and, you know, our, our soon to be kid that we like, that would be th- literally the greatest feeling in the world to me, at least if I got to a point where I make a large sum of money all at once, whether it's, Hey, uh, Joe Rogan wants you guys between Lewis and Lovecraft to be part of his <laughs> podcast network or, you know, Stephen King wants to publish your book. Like, it doesn't matter. I don't care where it comes from. But like that moment where I get to tell my wife all that love and support that you've shown me, all of that grace that you've given me over the years, 
and all that shit that we've gone through together, it was worth it. And that, that to me, like reading his, his, um, book on writing where he's talking about that, that absolutely encouraged me more than anything to keep pushing, to keep trying to, to, you know, experiment and, and see what's, what is good in your writing and, and try different things because this was a book he'd never ever expected to go anywhere. And it was the book that ended up launching his career. I don't I know. Think, it's, uh, do it you gets think to me. That, <laughs> do you think that's kind of like, even now a very, cause like, men in marriages even now are still kind of they have that societal pressure to be the provider and i know in their early years of marriage like steve really felt the pressure and the the depression that he couldn't provide for his family well enough that they were having yeah. serious money troubles um so it's interesting that like you kind of have the same thought that like if that were to happen you'd be like this is the greatest thing that's ever happened because now i'm able to like provide for my wife who's given so much to me whereas like I feel like I don't have that in my head at all. Yeah. Like, yeah, it would be awesome to be rich, but I'm not like looking at Talon and being like, I wish I could give you the life that you deserve, Talon. I think it's, I think it's different motivations for a lot of different people, right? Um, <clears throat> Rebecca is that motivation for me. The only reason why I do anything is because of Rebecca. If it wasn't for her, I'd, I'd probably just be hanging out, playing video games, drinking Mountain Dew, and, you know. <laughs> getting high like that would be that would be my life um probably reading some stephen king articles you know in in playboy and stuff because i i, I would only read them for the articles <laughs> of um, course <laughs> you're not looking at the pictures but like but that but without rebecca that's who i would be with her i have someone who's looking up to me someone who encourages me, someone who wants me to do better and knows that I can do better. And I'm proving that to her every single day. And I write because I, I want, I want to get, I want to show her what's inside of me. Right. And that's what marriages are. That's what relationships are that you're opening yourself up. And I want I want to prove to her that she is worth every single moment of pain that I've gone through in my entire life. And I, I think that that's what Stephen King is like. Honestly, I do. I, I, I think, you know, with what he's talked about in, in loving his wife and being so monogamous that I can't write orgy <laughs> scenes. Like, I think that that is his motivation. He found this girl that he loves and he and he pours out into the world everything that he is so that he can give her everything that she deserves that he thinks she deserves um, because she's affected him so much and i don't know it's it's something that if i have more time i could probably be more eloquent with but you know it's it's a reactionary emotion for me it's uh, i do it without even knowing anymore i i do it like i breathe i get up in the morning and go to work because of rebecca i i come into the studio to record this last Sunday, I recorded three podcasts and I did two D and D sessions, and I and then I had to go home and do some more work, and prepare for my day job the next day. Like, 
it was a bad day Sunday. It was it was the one of the longest days. And then the Friday before that was legitimately I was going from 5 a.m. until 7 p.m. Like going, like driving or working. So I go, I do all this and I do it not because I want to be because I want to be a, the greatest author of all time, because I want to be famous and, you know, yo, what up? I'm the man. We live in the society. But, like, like I'm doing it because <laughs> the hope is one day someone will notice, someone will pay me enough money that I can take my wife to Disney World and we can go, you know, go enjoy the things that, you know, Marvel and Disney stuff together. Um, so I... <clears throat> It's all, it's all of it is for her making friends is, is because I, you know, hope that those people enrich my life, but <laughs> mostly it's just so, for Becca. That was so beautiful that I feel bad that we have to continue the episode now. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that should have been the final sermon. Uh, I mean, we'll just, we'll just have that. We'll just, I'll edit that part and move it to the end. <laughs> I probably won't. Perfect, perfect. But, no, like, you it, won't. There is like it is true though. Like there's there's certain times when, you know, you connect with a person and, and with that all of that, all of what I just blah, vomited vomited over everybody <laughs> was what I felt when I read on on writing from Stephen King in that specific part. Because I get it, I understand it. So I just I didn't want to go over that too quickly. I wanted to spend some time there because I have spent the last three th- years in that one moment with good old Stephen. <laughs> good old Stephen. Okay. Well, now I have to say that part. What's my catchphrase? Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right. And I'm going to go back to eating my Roxy's Hawaiian food. So. You mean you don't have a human sized Taco Bell <laughs> meal with you? It's a human sized bag of Roxy's food. <laughs> Okay, so Stephen King's career was um, taking off right now. He was churning out novel after novel. Um, some of the, the ones that got published in kind of like rapid succession were Salem's Lot in 1975, The Shining in 1977, which was his first paperback bestseller, I believe. Um, he published Rage under the pseudonym Richard Bachman in 1977 as well. And his third child, Owen King, was also born that year. Did you have any- uh, the next? Did you have any reason why he did Rage under a pseudonym? He did, like, I think seven books under that pseudonym. And I don't... A lot of authors do this where they're like, oh, like, this work is super popular. So I'm going to see if I can write something a little bit different under a different name and let that book stand on its own two feet. And if it's a success, it's a success. And that's awesome. And if it's not, like, I don't want it to sell just because my name is getting big, Mm. which... I'm like, okay, yeah, I kind of get that. But also, like, that's kind of dumb because if I was an author, I'd want as many people as possible to see my work and not hinder it by putting it under a fake name. Yeah. My pseudonym, when I get big, is going to be Travis Dawson. (laughs) Perfect. Nobody will figure that out. They'll be like, man, Travis Dawson sounds a lot like Tyler Clawson. Is that? Nope. Not even close. Totally different. I was... So this is kind of a tangent, but like eventually, uh, like a fan figured out that Stephen King was Richard Bachman because he like people noticed that the styles were similar 
And then the fans saw at the beginning of the book that the same agent was representing Richard Bachman. Mm. And he was like, Stephen, do you know that your agent is also representing this guy? And then Stephen King was like, yeah, that's me. So, <laughs> so yeah, so he did the, the pseudonym thing. I mean, a lot of authors have done that. I think JK Rowling is probably the biggest one that I can think of today. And she still does that under her dude name. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know there's a few pretty popular ones nowadays i'm looking at uh richard bachman because i know i know that he had done he stephen king um (laughs) but like he's it's bigger than just he's a pseudonym right like he is he's become a fictional character within stories right oh i don't know about that i thought i within king's own books yeah uh, yeah i think he's in the uh the dark uh tower series throughout but then i also the reason why i looked it up is because stephen king was in an episode of sons of anarchy Mm -hmm. and he plays richard bachman oh yeah so i thought that was oh to be that successful that people write (laughs) roles for you with your pseudonym's name travis dawson he's gonna be in (laughs) the remake of sons of anarchy sons of anarchy (laughs) perfect (laughs) Um, so then The Stand came out in 78, uh, and in 79 he published The Long Walk and The Dead Zone, and I think The Dead Zone was his first hardback bestseller. Really? So, yeah, that's when he really starts to hit his stride in popular culture. Um, but his drinking and drug use was also taking off at this time. Um, he has written that he was drunk while he was delivering his mother's eulogy. Drinking was always a problem for him. Um, And he's also written that, quote, with cocaine, one snort, and it owned my body and soul. So cocaine was his favorite drug. Uh, He tried to hide the drug use from his family. uh, And in the meantime, they bought a giant mansion in Bangor that Tabby had always looked at as a teenager. It was like her dream home. So that's very romantic, but also like he was high all the time. So I don't know how great it was. Yeah. Um, It was a 24-room villa that was built in the mid-1800s. They renovated it significantly, added a pool, uh, and had a custom wrought iron fence made around it that's decorated with spiders, webs, and bats. Yep. Uh, to their delight, they found the house was also haunted with, like, some old general who had died no. 100 years before they moved in. No way. Uh, yeah, right? King says he gets the sense he isn't the only one in the room when he's working late at night, and Tabby says she'll often catch a sudden whiff of cigar smell when she's walking through the house. Okay, look, I, you know, okay, look, I want to believe <laughs> in ghosts as much as the next guy. Um... It's just so much bullshit. It's just like you're you're a, you're a horror author. You guys live in a mansion. Oh, and it happens to be haunted. Come on, give me a break. I I I'm staying at my uh, my in laws house. We're house sitting for them, and so it's it's an empty house. I've never really stayed in before. I mean, I've been there before, but I never stayed in there. Uh, and I wake up every morning at like three o'clock in the morning, which I don't know if you know about demonology but that's a scary time to wake up because that's when demons are they're just getting up to their little skitters and <laughs> they're gonna make themselves known at three o'clock in the morning uh wow and i went to the bathroom and i left the door open and uh swear to god something ran behind me i saw 
a reflection in like the mirror and everything. And turns out it's a cat. <laughs> but I thought for for a minute this place is fucking haunted. This place is goddamn haunted. Nope. It's dumb. It's so dumb. I'm so look, I'm just I'm tired of there not being ghosts in my life. I want there to be more ghosts. Oh. I don't believe in ghosts, but I am afraid of them. And we've been watching a lot of scary movies lately. Stop laughing that's, at that's me. How, that's how I am about Scientologists. So. Yeah. I don't believe in Scientologists, but, but I'm they afraid terrify of them. me. We've been watching a lot of scary movies and TV shows lately. So every single night, I'm just like turning on every light switch to get from the living room to bed. And then making Talon turn them off behind me. And, like, one night he came in after we'd watched us. And he decides, like, in the pitch black to just stand there in the doorway no. with his arms out like oh, this. Oh, no. What an ass. And I started, like, yelling at him. I'm like, stop it. Oh, that's terrifying. No. Yeah. Thank I you. hate that. I'm not a believer, but I am terrified. <laughs> I am. I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious. I am a little stitious. <laughs> So yeah, so the haunted Maine house is still their primary residence, but the Kings now winter in Florida because Maine is not pleasant in the winter. And they're old. And they're getting up there, so they have to go to Florida. Um, but yeah, so he's still doing a shit ton of drugs. Um, and in the 80s, it got so bad that he famously says he can't even remember writing Cujo. Um, some hosts of speaking events that he was invited to were offended that he showed up noticeably drunk which is not professional <laughs> what do you expect you pay as an author and you just you don't want a drunk one and you should pay an extra one. for not you think you can pay the little amount you pay and you're gonna get a sober author good luck buddy good luck <laughs> and okay that's bad enough, but worst of all, in my opinion, is that poor Tabby got used to sleeping alone and finding her husband the next morning passed out in a puddle of vomit in uh, his office. Oh. Which is not good, when, especially when you've got three little kids. Yeah. <laughs> um, it got to the point where he was drinking and taking drugs around the clock. Uh, in the winter and spring of 1986, he edited It while in a nonstop blackout. So... He was not. He was on a fast track to an early death. So no wonder we got a weird orgy scene because he doesn't. <laughs> and no even... wonder it's a thousand pages long. Uh, yeah. By the way, I looked it up on Libro.fm. Um, not a sponsor yet. Hopefully one day. <laughs> Hit us up, Libro. Um, Forty-six hours and twenty-one minutes. Jesus Christ! As a, An entire work week and then some. Yeah, you'd have to do overtime <laughs> to, <laughs> to listen, listen to all this of whole it. Book. There you go, JT, one of our listeners. He listens to to books. There you go, man. I gave you a whole <laughs> week's worth of audio to listen to. <laughs> and the commute too. Yeah, and the commute. That's right. <laughs> So, yeah, so finally, uh, his super tolerant wife, Tabby, had had enough. She went around the house collecting all the drugs, Coke spoons, and other paraphernalia that her husband had hidden around the house and put it all in a garbage can. Then she rallied the kids and some of their friends. And in a, you know, straight up intervention, she overturned the garbage can in front of Steve so that he had to look at, like, how much drugs he was doing. (laughs) 
Uh, and she told him he could either get sober or if he deci- decided to stay on his current path, the family would not stick around to watch. Good, yeah. Does he talk about that very much in On Writing? It's been like 10 years since <laughs> I've read that. I think that he kind of... Uh... I think he kind of skims over it, to be honest. He acknowledges it. He's, he talked about how he didn't remember writing Cujo. Uh, honestly, he's like most of like, yeah, that the whole like early 80s. He's like, I don't remember writing most of those. So, um, but then he kind of moves on. Like, I, I don't think it's something that he enjoys talking about very much. Yeah. And in all of the quotes I've seen, he's like kind of ambivalent about it. Like, he kind of talks about it not like he regrets regrets the drugs so much but that he like regrets not being able to remember certain things wouldn't which seems like kind of detached wouldn't you be like upset that you've got these these amazing stories that everybody loves that you're credited with writing and you didn't write them no yeah i would be pissed about that but i'd also feel bad for like all the hell i put my family through probably and i'd be embarrassed about showing up at speaking events drunk yeah honestly if if i was to do uh if i was king and i was to do a pseudonym that's when i would do the pseudonym like where like everything (laughs) i don't remember writing would be richard bachman (laughs) (laughs) stephen king didn't show drunk richard bachman did Just That's totally some next level disassociation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, they have this intervention and, you know, quitting drugs isn't like, it's not easy. So he had a couple years where he tried to like cut back and that didn't work. So it took about two years. And then in 1989, he quit cold turkey. And after two weeks of self-described hell, uh, he has now been sober for more than 30 years. That's nuts, man. I can't even imagine what it's like to go through withdrawals like that. Yeah, I mean, because he was using it 24-7, it sounds like. So, yeah. yeah. Withdrawals can kill you, right? Like, you can die from withdrawals? I think some people can. I think it's, like, rare, but people have died from it. Yeah, I... I believe so. I don't think that's a good excuse for, like, chronic drug users to not quit. No, that's um, but, not my point. I was just like, wondering. I could die if I quit Coke. Good old Bi- Ty Ty the Bible guy who's never smoked weed once in his life has zero idea what it's like to withdraw <laughs> from anything other than maybe sugar, which I have Yeah, done, no, it's a bad it time. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I figured, I figured it, like, I didn't know if it could kill you or not, or if it's just your body's just freaking out, but. I, I assumed, like, it can totally reject the absence of something, so. Yeah. If, yeah. So, that was a big deal, uh, and kudos to him for, for that. Yeah. Um, Cujo's. As Cujo's, Cujo's to him. <laughs> or not. We, we want good things for Stephen King. Oh, right. Well, yeah. We don't <laughs> want to stick, we don't wanna stick dog. a rabid dog on him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So as his fame increased, uh, King found it harder to live a normal, quiet life, which was kind of like all he ever wanted. He wasn't seeking fame. Uh, People regularly gawk at his house and take pictures in in Maine. Uh, I'm going to Maine later this month, and I fully intend to make my family drive by his his house so I can take a picture in front of that fence. I did a podcast Um, about you. Yeah, I'm not that crazy. I just want to see the the fence, okay? Um, I brought some some fans. (laughs) (laughs) You're the worst. Sorry, I'm really derailing this whole episode. (laughs) So, some of the crazy fans, not me, even throw packages over the fence, and 
post 9-11, that got a bomb squad called out and they blew up a copy of one of his books. Oh no, what? <laughs> yeah, people weren't like m- messing around on September 12th. Jeez. Yeah, no, I, be- I believe it, yeah. Um, and I'm sorry, in- that's just so ridiculous. They got the two towers, they got the Pentagon, <laughs> and they took out fucking Stephen King. Can you believe what the world's become on September? I don't know why I'm an Italian. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're like a, a, a New York I cop, right? Like yeah. an Italian immigrant. Yeah. You got this. <laughs> um, and then they had a scary incident in 1991 when a man named Eric Keene broke into their house while Tabby was home alone. It was like early in the morning. Uh, and he waved a box around and said it was a bomb and that he was going to blow up the house because he claimed that her husband stole the plot for misery from Keen's aunt. Uh, Tabby ran into a neighbor's house, called the police, and they found Keen hiding in the attic. Uh, the box was actually just full of pencils and paper clips. Classic. Um, yeah. So that sucks. <laughs> super weird coincidence is... Um... Eric, Stephen King stole the plot for another book from your aunt? No, he stole it from me. Um, I came up with <laughs> the story of Carrie like when I was three years old. Um, no, you weren't even alive. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Obviously joking. It's just interesting. Uh, Brian Keene is another author who writes a lot like uh, Stephen King does. And so it's just Ooh. interesting that, that Keene name kind of jumped out at me. Uh, really oh. good too. Uh, if you ever get a chance to check out Brian King's Keen's K E E N E book called uh, uh, "The Darkness at the Edge of Town," it's it, I mean it's very much like Stephen King style, so it's good. Oh, maybe that's his new pseudonym. Ooh, no, probably not. Inspired by the Keen incident. <laughs> That'd be weird. <laughs> Um, and then another notable incident, which you might have read about in On Writing, because um, it happened around the time that he was starting that book. Yeah. Um, in June, June 19th, 1999, um, Stephen King was out for his usual afternoon walk on the shoulder of Maine State Route 5. So he liked going on walks next to the highway. Um, and a driver named Brian Edwin Smith, which is weird because they've got the same middle name. Yeah. A lot of weird coincidences in this guy's uh, life. Yeah. But Brian Smith was heading toward King in his minivan. He was distracted by an unrestrained dog running around in the back of the van, and he hit King, launching him into the ditch. Uh, Smith left the scene, which I thought sounded bad at first, but it was because no cell phone, so he had to drive somewhere to call police, and then he came back. Yeah. And... So he was the first person that King saw when he woke up. Um, and King remembers this guy saying to him as soon as he woke up, here it is my bad luck to hit the best-selling writer in the world. So obviously he knew who he was, which is just crazy. Like, can you imagine hitting no. Stephen King? Even now he's like the best-selling author. Yeah, but no, I couldn't imagine hitting anybody, <laughs> let alone Stephen King. I mean, I... Why would Stephen King? I'd be King... fine with hitting a lesser author, yeah. but not Stephen King. Yeah, it's fine if I hit Brian Keene, but not <laughs> Stephen King. <laughs> See, but Stephen King was super messed up from this. Uh, he had a collapsed <clears throat> lung, yeah. multiple fractures of his right leg, um, and a broken hip. And he had to stay in the hospital for three weeks with that. And then he it was still like a super long road to recovery after that. Sure. Um, Smith, the guy who hit him, would later be arrested and charged with driving uh, to endanger an aggravated assault. Uh, he pleaded guilty and got, like, six months in jail that got suspended. 
uh, and he died of a drug overdose a couple years later. Um, King's lawyer uh, bought the van that hit him for $1,500 because they wanted to make it so nobody could cash in on the gruesome history and, like, buy the van that hit Stephen King. Uh, So they bought it and had it crushed. (laughs) That's kind of a dick move, though. Like, why? Why Why not let someone cash in on that? (laughs) Because it's... It hit him. So? Wouldn't that be so, like, gross to see that in the headlines later? Like, ooh, van that ran over Stephen King up for sale gets, like, one million dollars from some fucking rich dude. Good old Stephen King is against capitalism. That's what it is. He's a freaking liberal socialist who doesn't want people to make money and he wants all the money for writing his stories nobody else gets to have a fun story he could have sold it for charity i guess he could have sold it for charity think about the children hannah the children steven if you want me to hit you with another car so we can do this again just let me know (laughs) do it right this time man yeah so yeah so did he mention that very much because like while he was recovering, on writing was his primary project. Yeah. Uh, yeah, He. I, I, that's pretty much where it ends. Like, he talks about it, and he's like, yep, I almost died. And so now I'm writing this because I want to pass on some tools a little bit, and everyone keeps telling me I have to do a memoir. So this is my, this is the closest you're going to get to a memoir from me. Uh, and it's like one of the shortest things he's ever written. Yeah, it was great. It was awesome. <laughs> You lucked out with that choice. Yeah, I mean, compare that to Isaac Asimov, who wrote a three-volume biography himself. (laughs) Maybe that's what I like most about Stephen King, is that he's not that into himself. Yeah. Like, everybody else is, but he's not that interested in his own life. Yeah, I think he's he's pretty humble for who he is. I'll, I'll say, like... He does have his opinions on stuff, and and he puts them out there. But, I mean, it's not like he's like, look, I'm fucking Stephen King. Don't argue with me. He's just more like, this is what I think. And then everyone else is like, he's fucking Stephen King. Don't argue with him. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah. And he does use his, like, name for some good causes, too, like, one of the ways he gives back is trying to like write blurbs for authors mm-hmm. um, and like lend his star power to other people. We've talked to somebody who yeah. he did that for, which is awesome. Um, he's also like, he got sick of anthology, short story anthologies um, that he would contribute to. They would put his name in like huge text on the cover and like give him top billing all the time. So now he has this clause in his contracts where his name has to be the same size font as every other author's in a collection. And it's got to be alphabetical in the index. So yeah, he's like, you're not going to like just publish this. And I don't know if some of that is like brand protection too, but I saw it as like a kind of humble thing. Like, I'm not more deserving than any other author in this collection. So it's not like X anthology with Stephen King and 35 other authors. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, there's a fantasy book that I saw on the shelf one time and um, I don't remember what it was called, you know, like iron of the slave forger. So I I have zero idea. (laughs) Um, And I was like, oh, that looks interesting. I wonder who wrote it. And it said, edited by, um, really big, too, um, George R.R. R. Martin. 
right? And I'm like, oh, okay, so he edited it. That's cool. Who wrote it? And I, like, look around, <laughs> and, like, I couldn't find the author of this fucking book. I'm like, oh, no. what the fuck? <laughs> Some author wrote this book. And George Martin gets the damn uh, the title of it because he edited it. Like, I don't know. I don't yeah. know what the deal was. Maybe it was some rando thing. Maybe he, like, paid someone, like, ghostwrite it, and then he did the edit. But I just thought Yeah, I mean, it's dumb. like, uh, is it James Patton or whoever the big mystery dude is who, like, doesn't write any of his own stuff anymore? It's just, like, ghostwriters, and he has his name huge on the cover. Because he's too busy? Because he has too many ideas? He's just, like, too famous, but also probably old. To- but, yeah, Stephen King is not like that. <laughs> to be completely honest... To be for real for, like, one minute, I know I'm never real on this show. Never real. That is my goal in life. To <laughs> get be ghostwriter? S- not to be a ghostwriter, to have people write my... Like, I want to be so Why? famous. I want to be so famous that all I have to do is be like, what if uh, pineapple... Uh, came to life and fought crime. And they're like, this is a great idea, Mr. Clausen. We'll get, you know, we'll get one of the writers on it right away. And I'm like, yes. Okay, that actually makes a lot of sense because you are a total idea guy. So this is the one instance where I'll allow it. And, like, I work with people and, like, we come up with a story together, but I let them do the writing. Like, and they get the credit. Like, (laughs) they wouldn't go straight to where it's like, where it's like, oh, Tyler Clawson did this, and then in the back, it's like, but actually, it was written by. The- no, I'd be like, you know, like Tyler Clawson, Tyler Clawson presents, and then you know, like that's how I would want to do it. <laughs> okay. That's well, all I, I hope want, you get Anna. there. That's all I want. <laughs> that's, yep. Just so you, anyway, just so you know, I I typed in James Patterson into Google, and it says related to James Patterson is Stephen King. John Grisham, Dean Kuntz, and S.A. Cosby. What? Whoa. What? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Google. Fucking okay. Google. It was pretty dope. Man. Get it, man. <laughs> All right. We're almost there, guys. I promise. Yeah, we're I'll almost stop at the derailing end. this entire episode. <laughs> so Stephen King, obviously, still alive, so we don't have to do that sad, oh, and he died on this state thing. Yeah. Um, Watch him so. be dead right now. Watch oh, him have shit. Died I hope I... Today. Did we just kill Stephen King? I'm going to look it up right now while you talk. No. Uh, so, uh, King has, over the years, toyed with the idea of retiring, as one does when they publish 60-plus novels, uh, or scaling back just a little bit. This is always met with panic from fans. Um, and he's also... He's always said, and Tabby agrees, that he literally needs to write in order to live. He writes every single day. So... I don't think there's any risk of Stephen King stopping writing for reels anytime soon. Sure. Um, he's also been involved with many of the movie and TV adaptations of his work, writing and even acting in some of them, uh, and making like little cameos in other shows, like you mentioned, Tyler. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also played some shows musically with a band called the rock bottom remainders which is made up of other best-selling authors and like famous people i think um the simpsons creator matt graining was in the band at one point uh they're not very good but (laughs) they have fun very good (laughs) (laughs) all right um and then the other thing like they steve and tabby are fucking filthy rich 
Um, but both of them grew up poor, so they've never been great at, like, living the high life. So the two main things that they have are their houses in Maine and Florida, which admittedly are pretty Dope. very expensive houses. Yeah. Um, but they really spend the most the rest of their money supporting the arts. Uh, they own a couple radio stations and they have the Stephen and Tabitha King Foundation and they donate millions of dollars to hospitals, fire departments, libraries and other programs. Uh, King, a lifelong baseball fan, donated more than a million dollars in the 90s to build a baseball stadium for the kids of Bangor. Um, they've paid the tuition for college students, they've funded flights for troops to come home for the holidays, and they are well known for whipping out their checkbook anytime their friends fall on hard times. So, like, everybody that talks about them talks about their generosity. Like, yeah, and like, they're really good people. And my business partner, Frankie, he got to meet him and he got an award for writing the best story that Stephen King liked or something like that over in Maine. So... <sighs> You know, that was Wait, a big can, deal for him. Can you tell more about that anecdote? Because um, I was talking with Frankie and he was like, oh, I have a Stephen King anecdote. And I'm like, I'm sorry, Tyler and I are doing this this episode. I can't. Everything I just said is all that I know about it. He's told <sighs> okay, me someday. at least twice. Um, it's something he wrote a story because he's because Frankie is from Maine. He wrote a story and it was, you know, like Maine's young writer's association or something and Stephen King is a part of it and Frankie won because he's a great writer and then <clears throat> Stephen King showed up and shook his hand and gave him a, a prize or something and and I think maybe he got some scholarship money I don't know that's amazing I, yeah I don't know I I honestly don't so when he's on the show you got to ask him he'll he'll tell you we have a real life testimonial to the awesomeness of Stephen King. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's too. It's funny too because when I first met Frankie, I said a lot of stupid things that like I, like I just like would speak my opinion as I do, um, and almost everything I said was somehow insulting towards Frankie without it being like, I never called Frankie dumb or anything, but I was like, yeah, Stephen King is the worst author I've ever read in my entire life, and he's like, not only is he my favorite author but i've met him and he's a really nice guy i'm like oh <laughs> shit <laughs> it's amazing that you guys are business partners <laughs> uh, frankie has the patience of uh stephen king <laughs> <laughs> okay and this this last part is for devani one of our patrons <clears throat> Because she always complains that we don't spend enough time talking about the good husbands and the good fathers. Right. Stephen King is a good husband and father. Yeah. He, like we mentioned earlier, serial monogamous. Uh, he has never dreamed of cheating on Tabby. And even though he was kind of a shithead with all the drugs and drinking, he cleaned up his act. Uh, he's often been very busy with his career, but his kids have always been extremely important to him. One of his favorite memories um, is taking Owen, his youngest son, to a Red Sox game in the 80s. And even though, uh, of course, Stephen King, huge baseball fan, even though the Red Sox lost to the Mets 7-1, to he was overjoyed at the experience because for once he was able to share it with his son. Uh, and as a kid, without a father, he'd had to watch baseball games all by himself, home in an empty house. So this was like a huge moment yeah. for him. At getting big. to share that father-son experience. That's awesome. That's a really cool story. So, yeah. Dope. Kudos to the good dads. Yeah. We're, we're you know, few and far in between. I'll, I'm, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be on that list. <laughs> we got what? Tolkien and King. 
Yep. Kind That's of, about it. kind of Lewis, right? Like he and his stepson got along really well, right? Yeah, I don't think he was awful. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I don't think we've had any other dads that were like, "Oh yeah, he's a good dad." What is uh, Laura McDougal's husband? Is he a good dad? Do we know? Oh, he's probably he's a good dad. Yeah, he if he's not his, a good dad, he'll just go spend thirty days in a cabin and then just be a good dad. Be a good dad. I think his daughter's an adult now, so if he wasn't a good dad already, it's a little too late. But uh, I think he did. I yeah <laughs> stupid lorna mcdougall's husband <laughs> out there being a good dad yeah, just being a great guy good for you bud way to be a good this dad is... and an author guess you got it all if, huh <laughs> if anyone is listening to this they are probably so confused at the irrational rage you have toward lorna mcdougall's husband <laughs> oh man uh, <clears throat> All right, uh, it's time for our, our end of show housekeeping. Yeah, th- nothing else on, on him until we get to his books next episode, right? Yeah, so we're going to do a deep dive on, on some of his uh, most famous works. Tyler, I can't wait to hear your opinions on Carrie, the book, and all of the movies. Most, <laughs> Both most of people, the movies. Most people have already heard them from our, our um, Discord server. So um, that's- Well, you hadn't... You hadn't finished reading it then, had you? I had not finished reading it, but yeah, I okay. had watched both of the movies in oh, okay. in one night. In one, maybe I'll in try to, one sitting. Maybe I'll try to watch the new one before we record that episode. I, I don't think I've seen the whole thing of that. No? All right. Well, there you go. Yeah. Okay. All right. Here we go. You ready? I'm trying to pull the thing up, but I also really have to pee, so I'm, like, not doing a good job of getting the information. (laughs) Well, uh, right now we only have JT listening to us live, so if we need to take a quick second. No, it's fine. Uh, Tyler, we already teased the next episode, so tell the people where they can find us. Okay, yeah, you're really pushing this this through, huh? Um, You can... (laughs) Well, folks... You can find us at... Why are you saying it so slowly? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) This is fun. This is the most power I've ever had. Uh, You can find us uh, on Facebook, Instagram, and our website. You can go to facebook.com slash lewisandlovecraft. Instagram is at lewisandlovecraft. Uh, Our website is lewisandlovecraft.com. One day when we have more time and, you know time we can make sure Hannah that doesn't have upgraded, to pee up, updated more <laughs> and uh, you can always reach out to us by emailing us at lewisandlovecraft at gmail.com that is where we will take uh, comments reviews of books and, and authors that we've uh, gone over so if you guys have ideas and thoughts on Stephen King please send them over uh, we've been recently getting submissions for our Halloween episode submissions closed yesterday that is very exciting. I'm reading through them right now to figure out who's going to read those stories. So um, that is a, it's a very big deal. I'm very excited about that. That's, that's um, that. I'm also very excited. I have not been allowed to read them, but I've seen them coming in. So I'm very excited to finally hear them in a couple weeks. Yep. Um, and as always, we want to thank Jake Basson for our awesome intro music. Uh, you can find him and all of his work at soundcloud.com slash Jake Basson. Make sure you subscribe to our show on whatever pod catcher you're listening to, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, or wherever. You can um, you can check us out on um, 
Oh man, I, I was skipping ahead. When you subscribe, you can also go to Patreon and support us on Patreon. A couple bucks a month helps us out immensely, and eventually it can help uh, pay for a lot of stuff that we might want to do in the future, like maybe a merch store. I don't know, some cool stuff like that. Um, so we've got a couple people that are supporting us, and we'd love more. Um, and if your platform allows that, it uh, rate and review us, especially on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. Uh, we love hearing what you guys think of the show so if you have not already reviewed us please write us something nice or write us something mean and then we'll read it on air and make, make fun, fun of you, of you in self-defense <laughs> yeah probably we do need more <laughs> reviews it does take a lot of reviews to get noticed so we would really appreciate anything even just a quick you know just rating real fast is always nice um and the most important thing that you guys can do is just tell a friend uh we're doing this episode another king episode next next time and then we have our halloween episode so now is the time to get people interested in listening to our show you can you know send them to our website or show them on whatever podcast they're on it takes just a minute to get them interested and it does a world of difference to us and with That's that it. Anything else, Hannah? You got anything else? No. All right. Bye, Ghoul Gang. Ghoul Gang, we're out of here. Stay safe. Good luck. Have fun. Don't <laughs> don't have too many orgies. Ew. <laughs> we almost made it the whole episode. <laughs>